What if the secret to being a successful entrepreneur had nothing to do with your business plan, resources, market size, or strategy? If your success or failure weren't dependent on how much money you have, where you grew up, or the level of education you received. Welcome to episode 46, where I am joined by business leader Mike Smirklow as we discuss his latest book, Mr. Monkey and Me, where we talk about his entrepreneurial journey and what he calls the shape method to success and why he thinks the difference between success and failure is right between your ears. This episode is sponsored by Nickerson, a full-service branding, marketing, and PR and communications agency with team members in Boston, LA, Miami, and New York City. Visit them at nickersoncos.com. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. I read Mike's book in two sittings because his book reminded me so much of my own. The first page of his book started like this. Before you dive into this book, let me tell you what it isn't. The usual shit. I was immediately hooked. Every listener knows shit is my word. The book goes on to say that the usual shit is stuff found in blogs. It's bullshit advice like the 10 things Elon Musk does before breakfast every morning or how to streamline your wardrobe like Mark Zuckerberg. Like who the fuck wants to streamline their wardrobe like Mark Zuckerberg? This advice is shit. Because as Mike says, reading these articles, it's, it's like eating an entire bag of Doritos. It feels real good going down, but you haven't consumed anything of substance. Being an entrepreneur is amazing and fulfilling and all those other words used to describe something good. But you know what? It's also really fucking hard. Which is why I have asked Mike to be here. Because his book is not about the usual shit. It's about digging into the questions we need to ask ourselves to get to the answers of how we become great in business. Mike, thanks for being here. Welcome. It's great to be here, Julie. Thanks for having me. When I started your book, I couldn't put it down because so many of the voices and sentiments that you were exposed to growing up were the ones I heard on a daily basis when I was growing up. The one that struck me the most was, must be nice. I can't tell you how many times I heard that line delivered by someone in my family as they observed others with a better life than we had. I think that line says it all. It says, I'd rather despise other people for working hard and having more than me than actually do the work it takes to be successful. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and voices you were exposed to. Well, it's funny because you said that, and I, I love the fact you, you're, you're and I shared love of the word shit um, is, is something we could talk a lot about. But no, it's really interesting because when you said it, it was funny when you, how you described it was for your upbringing being a little more like angry. Mine was more, it was more passive. It was more, you can't even, it was lack of imagination. I couldn't even imagine what it'd be like. So my grandmother, um, who used the term more than anybody must be nice, that was her way to cast 99% of the population that wasn't in her immediate circle into the, you know, fairy tale gangster. If they were rich, they were gangsters or mobsters. If they lived a good life, there was really something wrong. You know, it was just kind of a more of a, it can't be possible. And therefore I'm not even going to try. You might not know this, but my listeners know that I'm a true crime junkie and I don't listen to anything else but true crime podcasts besides my own podcast that I listened to just to make sure it came out all right. There's a chapter in your book titled, I Could Have Been a Serial Killer. 
And can you tell us a little bit about what you meant by that? <laughs> That was actually my wife who coined the phrase, who also has shares your love of, of true crime. It was a moment of professional success. I had just taken my company public. It was one of those celebratory moments. And she had gotten to know my family and seen just the dysfunction all around. It was a compliment in some weird way, but basically said, you know, all things being equal, you could have been a serial killer and been fully justified. <laughs> just from some of the things I experienced as a child, the emotional turmoil, uh, a lot of, again, the lack of role models. And so it was like, yeah, that was kind of a joke, but it was one of those jokes, like, you know, like all jokes, it like had a lot of uh, truth to it. So I <laughs> thought it was an app. It was, it had me hooked. Cause I remember I was looking at it and I was like, oh, I want to read that chapter. I hadn't bought the book yet. And I was like, I'll buy the book just to read that chapter. <laughs> um, in the book, you also talk about how you credit a mattress commercial for changing your life. So that's a, that's a pretty impressive mattress commercial. Tell yeah, us about that. It's, it's, so the story is this, I mean, and it was really funny because you, you and I have both gone through this and, and the whole book is about how do you break out of these voices in your head and, and your content's amazing about that, whether it be imposter syndrome or really having the courage to go network with someone and introduce yourself and things like that. Mine was, this was in high school. It was a, I lived, we grew up right near an oil refinery. So every day you'd wake up to that lovely smell of burnt oil or oil, get, oil being refined which if any of your listeners know it, you know it right away. If you don't, you don't. But I was driving to school, bleak day, just kind of sitting there going, what the fuck am I going to do with my life? And you know, these, these people around me are all just seem to be living um, in the words of, I don't know if it's Pink Floyd or some poet, but words of maybe it's Walden, living lives of quiet desperation. And so funny, I was driving to school and I heard this mattress commercial and the guy started screaming, one of those kind of annoying, should I change the channel? But wait a minute, what's he going to say? He said, um, you know, a third of your life is going to be sleeping. So why don't you have a great mattress? And I thought about it and I'm driving in this 1976 Oldsmobile that had these rusted out floorboards and you're just like, shit, what is this guy talking about? But it then triggered me to start to think, okay, if a third of my life is going to spend sleeping, can I be purposeful with the other two thirds? And then I took that even when I started running my company and I said, listen, a third of my life sleeping, so I better have a good mattress, but also a third of my life is hopefully being spent with friends and family. And a third of your life is going to be spent working. And it was the first time I even began again to this imagination to think, is it possible for me to have some purpose for some thoughtful, some construction of what the life I want to live professionally? And that really stayed with me. In your mind, when you talked about the third of the life that you spend working, did you focus on the quality of life or did you focus on being successful and making a lot of money when you thought about oh, it? That? Well, that let's, yeah, it'd be clear at 17 year old Mike was like, how do I, you know, how do I get out of the trailer park life that I'm living and that's surrounding me? So I'd love to tell you that I had a moment of enlightenment and I said, I'm going to save the world and blah, blah, blah. No, I was like, I can make some money so that I can actually live a different life. And I would say that for the first third of my professional career, that was un. Uh, unmitigated focus. And I even apologize for the people that work for me because, you know, Canley, a lot of my entrepreneurial journey, I'd love to say that, again, I think I helped empower and train people and everything else, but a lot of it was just like about me and about me getting ahead. And, you know, there's a good side and a bad side like that to everything else. For me, becoming an entrepreneur in 2016 was when I started my company. I felt at that point, I want to make money for me. And if it's not as much money as I was making for other people, I'd rather just have my life back. I wanted to be successful and yes, I wanted to make money, but for me, it was more of a quality of life, being my own boss, making my own rules, so to speak. I mean, I still have to get clients and I still have to be pro professional in some sense, but um, for me, it was, I just want to control my own, what I do in that third of my life, which is work. 
Yeah. And I think w- when you're at that place, and I think you were at a different point when you kind of had that inspiration, I think that's where I know that's where I am now. I'm much more focused on helping entrepreneurs, investing in great companies, and really trying to mentor and coach. The financial aspect to a job, um, you know, I'm a co-founder of a venture capital firm. The financial aspirations are a very, very distant for me. Uh, you know, it's part of the reward structure that is in my business, but it's certainly not the driver. And that is, I think it's a lot of like, you know, I'd love to, I'm curious about that because I think there's motivations that work for periods of time. And for me, I had this lust for achievement and money and yeah, it satisfied. It was great. It's wonderful. I wouldn't trade it, but it never really quieted some of my inner voice. And so that really forced me to say, okay, well, those motivations, the things that motivated 18 year old Mike or 20 year old Julie are going to be different as you progress. And so I think part of this is also resetting those expectations, but did you find that? Is that one of your, was that one of the driving forces for you in terms of resetting the expectation? Honestly, Mike, I'm still trying to figure out what this company is. It seems to change so rapidly depending on when I started the company as a consultant, I never thought I'd be a professional speaker. I never thought I'd be an author. I certainly didn't envision myself sitting in front of this microphone and putting together a podcast. Like, I think I'm still trying to figure out what this company is and not who it serves. I know who it serves. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure out who, what it is, you know, cause it keeps evolving so rapidly. I don't know if that ever happened to you in any of your companies. It, it does all the time. I mean, I think that's, but yeah. I think it's part of the life journey and again, not just go back to the book, but the voice inside your head, my Mr. Monkey voice will then, when I get to those moments of questioning, the risk is the monkey voice starts to tell me I'm wasting my time. What am I doing? This isn't big enough, blah, 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 blah. It's still here. I mean, it's still my voice you know, that yeah. was going through my head as I walked in to, to get ready for this. But then you have to say, okay, well, let's take a pause. Well, okay, what did I set out to do? Go back to first principles. Why? Where do you get your energy? That's the other thing I've been thinking about. Where do I get my energy from? And then how do I put more of my calendar in those energy zones? But also then like trying to get better at recognizing that it is not, there is no answer, right? You know, I mean, your business, right. there's no answer. I don't know. No, and in that whole old line that if you find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Bullshit. Yeah, like no matter how much you love your job, it is work and it is hard. Yeah. No matter how much you love what well, you Well, that's do. what, you know, it's so great you said, because I also think that about entrepreneurship and I think there's a lot of false to that, you know, the bullshit blog stuff. It's like, there's this nirvana that's pitched out there to entrepreneurs. You know, if you start your own business, you have all your control, you'll be so happy. Well, you're going to have to pay bills and you're going to have to fire employees and people aren't going to listen to your dream. And you're going to work probably a lot fucking harder than you did when you had your corporate job. And so I just, I, I'm so passionate about entrepreneurship. So the world needs more of everything in entrepreneurship uh, except the bad behavior, but then you also have to do it with reality. Like it's going to be hard and it's going to take, mm-hmm. you're going to have ups and downs, but knowing that going in, I think is a lot better than the Nirvana pitch uh, to most entrepreneurs. I'm going to get into the shape formula in a second, but I have one question that I feel like happened to me when I became successful was where I came from. People started thinking that I thought I was too good for them. Yeah. And I heard that a lot. She thinks she's too good for us. I'm, I'm assuming that happened to you. Absolutely. And it's, it's so funny. And I'm, I'm always curious about this because I don't know if there's a, I mean, not to, I don't know if it's feminine, masculine. I don't know. I just throw it out there because I think it's universal, but I was felt unusual because I felt it very personally. It, even when I went to college, I was first with my family to get a four-year degree. And so even coming back early on, I would start to feel this back to that, they, it must be nice. 
my relatives started to see me moving to the other side of that circle. And then it was like, well, wait a minute there, college boy. Like, you know, don't, don't get high on your horse. Other things I heard all the time. All those things that were basically saying don't achieve. And I think that is one of the most damaging voices that any person who's trying to get to a different point in their life can hear. Uh, I see it all the time. I mean, that's why like a lot of professional athletes, for example, had these great careers and then destroyed all the wealth that they created because it's hard to, you got to be different. You're suddenly not the person and your friends and relatives are like, no, 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 come, come back down here with us. Um, and it's that emotional side of like, well, I don't, I didn't want to discard my relatives. I, I love them. They were the people who brought me up, but I also didn't want to go live back in the trailer park. So I, I just think that's such right. a hard emotional thing to deal with. It is because people will say you changed and I don't think there's anything wrong with change. Like if you're changing in a positive direction. You know? I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So tell me about the shape formula. Tell our listeners about the shape formula and break that down for us and you know how that works into the entrepreneurial mindset. Yeah, well, for a little bit of context on it. So I want to be clear, like I, I you, the part, entry part I wrote because this is not a memoir. I mean, I had a pretty good career. I achieved more than I thought I would, but my career professional success would be a, It'd be a two-page blog post, maybe. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe. I don't. I. I. I, mean, I mean, disagree. Yeah, I mean, it just. It just. I didn't. Not. I mean, there's great long-form content around, like how Shoe Dog, how Phil Knight ran Nike for 35 years. That's an amazing story. But I wanted to do was really trying to give the mental aspect. Um, again, I'm a believer that we the world needs more entrepreneurs. We need more diversity in entrepreneurship. We need more people who are successful to stay healthy and not do dumb shit like you see certainly in Silicon Valley and other parts. So that was the impetus for it. And then I looked at what I had seen from my own experience, what I'd seen from other entrepreneurs. And then I talked to a bunch of much more successful entrepreneurs than myself. And I said, what do you think the heart five or six aspects of mental tenacity that you would call out? And so that's the, that was the source of the formula. It's not exactly Maslow's hierarchy of needs, certainly not that profound, but it really does build upon itself. And so it's five attributes that I see across the board that really relate to mental toughness. And then what I try and do rather than pie in, the sky, pie in the sky stuff is every chapter have what I call monkey minders, four or five things that I've seen in myself or others to really put these into practice. So again, the, the whole goal was pragmatism versus, you know, airy. Uh, I used to always hate when companies, you go like see a company and their corporate values and there's like an eagle soaring over a canyon and there's like <laughs> 17 things like we always treat each other respect, right? And then you walk in the meeting and like, fuck you, fuck you. And you're like, well, what, what about the eagle over the canyon thing? And they're like, yeah, screw that shit. I will tell you, I did a lot of research on swearing and profanity in life and in corporate settings. I did a podcast called What the Fuck? Why Swearing is Good for You. And- the research shows that teams that are are comfortable enough for sort of jocular interactions and swearing are actually mo the more productive teams. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know about podcast guests. I don't know <laughs> swearing. I used to get to ask them like, oh, I, I like need to write a sticky that says don't swear, Mike, and then remind everyone that the book's proceeds all go to charity. Those are my two things. Um, <laughs> you can swear on this podcast, okay. obviously. Good, good. <laughs> So let's break down. So the five letters of shape stand for the five attributes. Yep. It's, it's S is for self-awareness. H is for help. A is for authenticity. P is for persistent. And E is for expectation. But I do think that the most important entrepreneurship starting off is, is S, and that's self-awareness. And to me, that's really understanding what you're good at, what you're not good at, mm -hmm. where your strengths lie, where you might need some help. Uh, and then also what you think you're good at, but really trying to get a 
unbiased view of where your strengths and, and weaknesses lie. Because then I think it gives you a foundation for H where you can get some help, but also playing to your strengths. I'm such a big believer, you know, hell, I've got more weaknesses than I care to count, but is the best use of my time to try and change those weaknesses or play to my strengths? And I think that really mm-hmm. begins, that attitude really starts with self-awareness. So the help I'm assuming is- get some. Know yes. when you need help. Know when you have to hire mentally. Like, what is the help? Yeah, the help is, is so the, what I, I tell the story, and I can, I'll tell you, so mine was uh, where my self-awareness was. I didn't know how to hire real executives when I was first time entrepreneur. And in my case, that was the head of sales. And I had gone through like four head of sales. I had fired them all. The board was looking at me like, well, you got one more try here and then you're going to be gone. So I went to see a legendary coach in Silicon Valley. He had been a great CEO, Bill Campbell. There's a book, Trillion Dollar Coach, written by, about him. He had mentored Steve Jobs, uh, the founders of Google and Twitter. So just amazing individual. I got 30 minutes with him, sat down with him at a bar and said, Bill, like, I need to talk to you about this. And this is a crusty old guy. Oh, smirk, Bill, you look like shit. What the hell is going on with you? I mean, that's what he was. He used to be a football coach too. Thanks, Bill. I grabbed my beer, you know, slam my beer, order another one. I was like, what the fuck's going on? And this is how he would talk. So I'm going to imitate him. And I said, well, I can't figure out how to hire a head of sales. I'm, I'm going to get fired here. And he said, well, who's helping you? What do you mean? Who's helping me? I'm, I, did you just hear what I said? I'm, I'm working 18 hours a day. You know, I barely have time to get a workout at 5 a.m. And then I'm going to lose my job. He just stopped me and he said, listen to yourself. Like Steve Jobs has a coach. Tiger Woods has a coach. Why the hell would not Mike Smirklone not have a coach to help you think about the areas where you can improve? And that was as simple as like all great advice. It was super simple, very actionable. And then I took it into consideration. But where I, I really push uh, entrepreneurs is everything you're trying to do, somebody somewhere out there has done it. And mm-hmm. so look around and it doesn't have to be. And I think way too many times entrepreneurs try and go some, you know, super powered former CEO of GE, which will be absolutely meaningless to you. Go try and find someone who's just a few years ahead of you in your journey or has gone through what you're trying to achieve very recently and ask them. Because I think A, people love to give help and and B, the world kind of opens up when you show that vulnerability. When I read that part of the book about your conversation with Bill, I thought to myself, well, not everybody has access to these kind of people. So you were really good at meeting people and maintaining relationships. How did you do that? I'm speaking to an expert on this, so I have to be careful. What I found in terms of networking, but for me, what I found is, I discovered a secret like, A, people love to give help. Like, who doesn't like mm-hmm. to? I call you up and say, Julie, if, you, know, not in, you know, we're friends. And I say, I really need your advice on this. Oh, now I feel good about myself. I'm honored you're calling me. So there's that first part of it. And the second thing, and I think this is real superpower, is ask one, ask one piece of advice, do it in less than 15 minutes, and, and finish the conversation after 12 minutes. So they're like, yeah. wow, Julie just asked me a really important question. I gave her advice, and I got three minutes of my day back. Yeah. And I think, and so you can do that. And then also there's a fact that I just acknowledge all these people that have gone before me. Hey, I'm trying to figure out mm-hmm. how, to, how, how to hire a CFO. You've done that. What would you say? And I think that comes from a position of strength, but it takes a mental, to me, it felt very uncomfortable at first. Oh shit. I got to acknowledge weakness. Acknowledge. I don't know what I'm doing here. Yeah. Once you get over that, it really changes. When I got to the A part of shape, I was like, oh authenticity. Everybody says that word. Like, I feel like being authentic and I even use it in my tag. Like you can authentically be who you are and still be wildly successful. And I feel like I picked that word before everybody started using it. So 
You know, I don't know what the question is here. I just was like, can we get another word besides you know, authentic? I, I'm a slave to acronyms and I couldn't figure another vowel out. The, the book would have been different if it was the shape formula. formula or the shape. You know, and the whole time I'd be talking about the shape formula and you're like, oh my God, this guy's got the shape formula. So, so I had to figure it out and then I bet, no, there's a little bit of that, but no, actually what it was is for me. I certainly struggled because I, I hate the word too. Because and there's there's amazing books about there's like 500 books about authentic yep. leadership and all that stuff. I basically wanted to say, you know, for me it was how did I finally learn to show up and be Mike and not be listening to the voice in my head? I had two great role models. Uh, one miracle role, two people I'd worked with, and they were very different characters. On one end, it was like this uber alpha male, and the other one was this very introverted but incredibly smart guy named Ben Horowitz, who now run the most uh, prolific venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. And I tried to be a combination of the two and it just wasn't working. It worked for a little while. It helped me kind of, you know, put my super jacket on. Okay, I'm going to go be tough guy at the, at the meeting today. And there's one time we were faced with a really critical employee decision. And when I tried to channel either of the voices, they both felt like not the right voice. And so I finally turned mm -hmm. to my team. I'm like, I don't know what to do. And so that was the extent I would take authentic leadership. I think it's really important but I'm certainly no expert on it. And I just think it's an attribute you have to have and then, you know, go read some of the great books about it. My version of authenticity for me as a company owner is I had to find my voice. I had to figure out how I was going to disseminate my information. And, and I had to be okay with the fact that there were people that were not going to like me. And for me, that was my version of authenticity where I was able to say, well, I'm not for everyone. Yeah, which, but that's, but, but your voice, when you see your materials, it's very clear. And if you don't like it, that's okay. I think that is so much more uh, attractive, if you will, in terms of source of information than here's Julie and she's vanilla ice cream and she's going to use words that everyone's heard of. I, I think that's great, yeah. but it, but it, it takes courage. I mean, I'm sure, did you? Yeah. I did. I remember when I first put out my YouTube series, I don't think I sweared in the first season. They bleeped out the swear, like they cut the swears. And I finally said to my editor, I was like, we need to stop bleeping me. Like <laughs> we need to just let it go. And cause I didn't think that the first season was authentic at all. Um, I felt like it was very prescribed. Wow. I said to myself, okay, I, I have mannerisms. I have a way of speaking. And that's the only way I can be who I am. And that was freeing where I wasn't trying to please everybody. And I wasn't trying to be somebody I wasn't. And the content is still really good. So what does it fucking matter if I swear? Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, I think that, you know, and also like if people are turned off by swearing, then let them go find some other source of inspiration or advice. That's okay. So the P of persistence, we all know this, you have to keep working at it. It, it is. And it kind of goes into um, a, a little more than that, which is, it is that like, listen, and it ties into expectations, but it's more like, I give the example, you're a marathon runner. You mentioned that before. Why I like the marathon, I've done one and one was enough for me. If you, someone comes to you and says, I want to be an entrepreneur, you wouldn't say, hey, good, go. Okay, good luck with that. Go start, write your business plan and then you're going to go. It's like, no, right. you would do it like you did a marathon. Hey, it's going to take you four months to train. You have to change your diet, yep. all this other stuff. And I think that's the mindset. The once you, once you start to realize that and then also realize that it never gets easy and that ties the expectations. Right. But, you know, I had a very interesting time in my, I thought for, Early on in my entrepreneurial journey, once my company got to this big in revenue or this many employees, magically, again, it was going to get easy. And it didn't. And then I finally, yeah. once I realized that, it's like, okay, this is just part of it. You know, again, your fourth marathon is not going to be any easier. 
but but right. at least you're aware of that. And that's really- They get faster, they, but they don't get easier. <laughs> that's for sure. So the expectations, are you saying that we should temper our expectations? Not at all. Not or... at all. Um, actually, the opposite of that. But what I, what I think about with expectations is, I think there's, like everything else, there's, there's a beginning, a middle, and the end. I think one of the things I find with entrepreneurs is one of the reasons people get stuck, uh, I see it every day in my day job at Next Coast Ventures, is my idea isn't big enough. And so there's sometimes an expectation in the beginning, like it's mm-hmm. got to be a huge idea. Then there's the expectations when I'm going through it again, it's going to get easier. And then there's an expectation like it's going to end perfectly. Mine did not. And so really more around like everything else in life, having expectations around it and being thoughtful about them to me is more a foundation for being mentally healthy. And it's certainly in the beginning, like I, I just, again, I'm passionate about this and wanting more people to try to move forward on entrepreneurship. Howard Schultz started Starbucks. He did not think someday there'll be five gazillion Starbucks uh, on the planet. Right. He thought I wanted to have a similar coffee experience like experience in Italy. If you read his book, Pour, the, Pour Your Heart yeah. Into It, great book. But so yeah. a lot of times it's just like, do you have a good idea? Are you solving a real pain point? And is it something you're really going to enjoy? Which the last one's actually really important because you're going to spend 80 hours a week doing that. So I think like, you know, those three things to get going and then as you move through it, realize it's never going to be easier. And then in my case, I just, I think there's also, a, for most people, there's a natural ending or an unnatural ending and that's okay too. When I was reading your book, you focused a lot on looking for companies to buy. You talked about calling people saying, I want to buy your company. I want to buy your company. And me as a person who's, who started two companies, my husband's architecture firm and, and my firm, I was like, why doesn't he just start a company? Why are, why is he looking to buy a company? Like I always, my vision of entrepreneurship is you start something, you don't buy something. So why can yeah. you, can we talk a little bit about that, that difference? Cause I remember I said it over and over again out loud. I was like, <laughs> just start a fucking company, Mike. I, you know, it's, it's really good <laughs> advice, Julie. I only had one problem. I just, there was one little problem. I didn't have a good idea. So I, in, in the know thyself, in all seriousness, and I'd watched two legendary, I was working in Silicon Valley and the, the two gentlemen I mentioned, Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz, these guys were awesome. And they're the Hall of Fame entrepreneurs. Um, started, Mark started Netscape when he was like 22 or something like that. Um, so amazing entrepreneurs. And when I watched them and how they did it and how they started something from scratch, I realized, A, I didn't have a great idea that I was wildly passionate about. And B, my strengths were much more in line with taking someone else's you know, idea and helping it move forward. I still find it in my day job. The reason I, I'm now a venture capitalist is if I had a great idea, I would go start a business. I love hearing ideas and helping the entrepreneur, helping her shape it and grow it over time. So that was more about my, the way I thought about it. And I wanted to run something. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. That's another path forward to, you can actually go buy a small business. It's an entirely different path to become an entrepreneur. It will get you most of the same energy and accomplishment just a different way to do it. So tell me about your company now and how you help entrepreneurs. Because I actually, when you say I'm a venture capitalist, honestly, I'm like, I'm going to have to Google that. <laughs> well, <laughs> like... you know, well, my kids, if you ever watch Shark Tank, that's what my kids think I do. They think I sit there next to Mark Cuban and someone comes in an idea and I give them the thumbs up, <laughs> thumbs down, and then I write them a check and they go off and you know, make billions. That's not it. Um, so venture capital started this firm in Austin, Texas, five or six years ago. It really focuses on helping early stage companies. So most companies, you're an entrepreneur, you start it, you raise a little bit of capital to get going. And then when you start to have some customers, where do you get additional money to grow that business? And so, and venture capital tends to be a little bit more towards technology or technology related companies, not always, but ours is. And so we get in, 
usually when a company has achieved some level of customer acquisition, they figure out a little bit of revenue and then we give them uh, money and get on, join their board and really try and roll up our sleeves and help them take their business to the next level. In exchange for that, we get part of the company. So to be very clear, we're not uh, benevolent, uh, not-for-profit. We do get the get equity in the business. And then as, they, as that business grows and they sell it or take it public or whatever happens, we get rewarded along the way. But it's really all about the entrepreneur. On your website, if, if people are thinking about becoming an entrepreneur or they're just starting their journey, you have a survival test on your website that they can go into and... yeah maybe see how fit they are for this endeavor is that yeah, it's kind of a fun way. Um, and again, I, I do, I'd be remiss. I, I wrote the book, all the proceeds go to charity. So if anyone's interested in the book, Mr. Monkey, me, all the proceeds go to charity to help students who are interested in entrepreneurship that come from diverse and underrepresented backgrounds. So that's to get that out of the way. Um, the website, mikesmerklow.com. There's a free chapter of the book. There's some content around the mental. I used to call it the other shit, which you would like. And then we had to, that was going to be, that was the working title of the book. And then my publisher. Could you imagine if your book was the other shit and mine was the shit? I know, I know. (laughs) So that was the other shit. And then they they said, now you got to change it. Julie already owns the shit category. So they said, yeah. (laughs) There's a a survival guide, which is just a fun quiz and and really kind of gets you to understand a little bit about the formula and test your readiness to uh, take this on. That's great. Mike, I enjoyed this conversation so much. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, thanks, Julia. It's awesome. I can't wait to read your book and keep doing what you're doing. The content is so desperately needed. So thank you. Oh, thanks. What I really did like about this book and this conversation with Mike is that it really was about the things that you face every day. And not just if you're an entrepreneur, but in business in general. And not some bullshit list of things you're supposed to do every morning at four o'clock because that's when the most successful people wake up to start their day. There's so much of that bullshit out there trying to tell you that you need to wear the same exact outfit every day if you want to be as successful as Steve Jobs because he wore the same black turtleneck jeans and New Balance sneakers every day because he didn't want to spend one extra minute of brain power per day trying to decide which t-shirt to wear because that was one less minute he would have to think about his company. Well, you know what? I like wearing different clothes every day. That helps me feel confident. And when I feel confident, I'm better at my job. For shits and giggles, I googled, what does Tony Robbins do every morning? Apparently, this is a very popular question because a ton of shit came up, including a five-minute video of how Tony starts his day at his beachside villa in Fiji, may I add. The video was about starting your day with five minutes of what he calls priming breath, which is actually just um, a riff on the breath of fire work from yoga to start your day calm and balanced. And I was like, you're at a private beachside villa in fucking Fiji. Of course you're calm. You know what I want to see? I want to see him do this in a regular house with two kids screaming in the background, a dog constantly dropping their ball in your lap because it's time to play, and then a husband or wife asking you, why are you breathing like that? Are you hyperventilating? Are you dying? Because that's how that shit would go down in a normal setting. This is why you can't put stock in those lists of what the most successful people do because they all seem to wakey-wakey at 4 a.m. because it's been scientifically proven that 4 a.m. is the most productive time of the day because it's the time of the day with the fewest distractions. Yeah, of course, because everyone else is asleep like a normal fucking person. I wake up at 5.20 and you know what? That's plenty early enough. 
I'm going to stop going down this rabbit hole and the types of opinion pieces because I don't want to miss recapping a few of the actually useful tips that Mike mentioned in the interview. One being that you do have to know your strengths and your weaknesses so that you can play into your strengths and have someone help you in the areas where you aren't as strong. A true gem for me that Mike talked about was the need for a coach. All the top athletes and business professionals have coaches. Why don't we ever think about investing in a coach who can help us achieve our goals? This one made me think a lot and still does. And another thing that he said is that it's never going to be easy. It's always going to be work. We just need to put ourselves in the best positions we can to succeed. Okay, cocktail time. This week, it's the f- it's the fun and flouncy. After I edit this podcast today, I'm heading over to the neighbor's house to make this drink, which Peloton instructor Cody Rigsby called the trashiest drink of summer 2021. It's got just three ingredients rosé, frozen berries, and diet lemon lime soda. We, us girls, were actually using Fresca because we love that. We love Fresca. That's it. You throw some frozen berries in a big-ass wine glass, pour in some rosé and top with Fresca. Yeah, it's a perfect way to beat the heat. Uh, yeah, so I'm just going to pop back in here, guys, and say that we made this fun and flouncy drink last night. And it was not good. I mean, like, seriously, like, one out of five stars. Do not recommend. Uh, (laughs) Me and Lauren ended up uh, tossing ours in the garden and just drinking the rosé that we had. So maybe skip this one. Maybe skip this cocktail of the week. All right, friends. That's it for this week. Thanks for being here. Please review, share, and subscribe. I appreciate you. Until next week, cheers. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works. This Shit Works.